Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jake Meter encouraging us to look at life from a biblical instead of a cultural lens. So what really seems to be going on is there's all of these kind of lifestyle markers and lifestyle choices that are seen as just essential to human flourishing in America. And we're pursuing those first. And once all of that is secure, whatever we have left is what we're able to give to the Christian life. Jake Meter next. Jake Meter wants us to think about the Christian's place in the world. That is, how should our faith in Christ influence how we approach living in our culture, in our families, our view of politics, and more? Jake is editor-in-chief of a publication called Mere Orthodoxy and author of What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. Jake, tell us why you wrote such a comprehensive and provocative book. Yeah, I. it's funny. I was writing it, um, like, amidst COVID and even before COVID had kind of been thinking about the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of what the subtitle was born out of, was just this sense that um, the globalized kind of post-Cold War world that we've known. And like for me, I'm 35. So it's really the only world I have living memory of. Mm-hmm. Like I was born before the wall fell, but I don't remember it. Um, that world's winding down. Um, and this new kind of order or system, whatever term you want to use that's emerging, is going to be decidedly different in a number of ways. And it's going to ask different questions of God's people. It's going to force us um, to think about questions of discipleship and catechesis in different ways, I think. And so I was trying to write something that could be helpful to ordinary Christians, pastors, and other Christian leaders who kind of feel like they're treading water and at the same time that they're treading water, feel kind of lost and are just trying to get a sense of um, footing in a fairly precarious, confusing world. When you say a new order is emerging, what what do you mean? In, in what sense? Um, so there's just a lot of different um, questions that we're going to have to confront in the short to medium term future. Um, I mean, one of them is just that we now have these little devices that we carry around in our pocket all the time that are basically distraction machines Mm -hmm. um, that do all kinds of things to our attention span, to our ability to be with other people. Um, Just yesterday, I was um, I saw an ad for a master class, and I think the title was how to be with people. Hmm. And like, we we need a class for this now. The other piece is that when you add social media dynamics to those phones and high-speed internet and all these other things, now you add mob dynamics to the picture. So there's this sense of kind of low-grade fear or anxiety that you probably carry with you to some degree um, a lot of the time or all the time. There are also, this wasn't so much on my mind when I was writing the book, although I think it's become more apparent since then, um, there's going to be material questions for us that are going to be different now. Um, Supply chains in a global economy can be somewhat vulnerable and can be disrupted. And we already saw that a little bit during COVID. We've seen it during the Ukraine war. Um, Just um, a few days ago, I saw 
China actually released demographic data indicating their population has slipped, which you got to figure it's probably worse than what China is actually saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what does a disrupted Chinese economy mean for the rest of us? So there's all of these new questions that are creating um, uncertainty where I think there was a, an assumed stability for a very long time. And we haven't even talked about sex and gender questions, um, but those also introduce a whole nother layer of complexity to this. So there, there's just a lot of different negative social factors all coming together at once to create a new kind of system that's confusing and asks a lot of hard questions of anybody who's simply trying to live a kind of humane life in the world, I think. And the sex and gender questions, I mean, obviously, we've, we've, we've got the so-called sexual revolution, which supposedly kind of got all of this launched back in the 1960s. And since then, we've been uh, we've had uh, the wake of that in so many other areas. Uh, can you touch on a point or two, what you're referring to? I mean, we have a lot of things that have been happening recently, yes. but, but, but you believe things are actually continuing to change. Yeah. Well, so the, the biggest development in the 60s in terms of sexuality is actually um, contraception and a widely available, highly effective pill that can... Mm -hmm. um, prevent people prevent women from getting pregnant so that alone in itself has a way of kind of rewiring how marriages work and so in the book i talk about just the the way you see birth rates fall off a cliff in certain parts of the western world starting in the 60s with the availability of contraceptives and so what you end up doing with that and i don't know how i'm sure some people realized it and that was a goal and some people it was just not something they had foreseen but when you transform marriages through something like the pill um you've effectively redefined marriage away from the home and you've made it into a kind of relational union of two careerists who feel strong attachment to each other. And so the traditional purpose of marriage was that it provided a kind of container where children could be raised safely with love and affection and care and be taught what they needed to learn to live in the world. But once you introduce something like the pill to the picture, that isn't really necessary any, anymore because children now are basically a choice and you can choose or choose to have them or not. And so it fundamentally redefines what marriage is. Um, and I think that is reflected in how easily and quickly um, cultural attitudes about gay marriage changed because there wasn't really an argument for why two people of the same sex couldn't marry because we had kind of already made marriage sex agnostic anyway through the pill. And so it was, and that was reflected in the Supreme Court arguments. Um, there were Supreme Court justices who couldn't understand any reason besides animus for why you would limit marriage to one man and one woman. And so I think once you introduce that fundamental redefinition of what sex is, what marriage is, what family is, it's hard to slow that train down once it leaves the station. Mm. Well, Jake, your book is What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. There's so much just in that title. And when you when you ask what are Christians for, 
are you asking and applying then what really is the purpose of the Christian life? In other words, once God saves us, forgives our sins, redeems us, why are we here? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to foreground the idea that there is an end in view for the Christian life. And that ultimately is knowledge of God and union with Christ um, through faith in the gospel. And well, the, But constantly we see in scripture that love of God is paired up with love of neighbor. And these are the two great commandments, Jesus tells us, and you see it in the Old Testament. Um, it's a central concern of scripture that God calls people not simply for their own private benefit and private, like privatized future happiness, but he actually calls us to be the means by which he renews the world. Um, and so one of, one of the thinkers I talk about a lot in the book is a reformer from the 1500s named Martin Bootser, who was a mentor to John Calvin. He actually introduced Calvin to Calvin's wife, hmm. um, pressured Calvin to mar to get married because Calvin didn't want to get married. <laughs> and Bootser was a huge proponent of marriage and so persuaded Calvin to get married. <laughs> but for Bootser, that was his kind of the heartbeat of his theology for the entirety of his ministry. His very first book... Um, published in 1523. It's one of the first big Reformation books because that's super, super early. Um, it's called Instructions in Christian Love. And so I actually quote from it a bunch in the book. And then his very last book was a letter to the King of England instructing the King of England and how to um, rule as Christian love would have him use his power in the in the nation of England. So it's just this central concern of his throughout his ministry. And so someone like Bootser doesn't really know anything of a privatized faith. Um, it's just natural to him that you, you've been called, you've been saved, you've been baptized. Now God equips you and calls you to take up, he calls it the yoke of Christ, um, this life of Christian discipline that is a pouring out of self for the other central to the whole idea is it sort of part and parcel of 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 the phrase salt and light being salt and light yeah yeah that, in the that world? Would, yeah yeah that's that's a good way of talk connecting it to some of the other conversations going on for sure that's yeah and and, and at least as i understand it um uh, you're addressing or in in one sense this this message in your book is addressing the polarization in the church Obviously, uh, you've you referred to COVID. Uh, there was mm -hmm. polarization before that, but boy, throughout yeah. COVID and after, it has been um, uh, accentuated and 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 magnified. Really, yeah. do, do do is that part of what what your hope is for what you're saying here that you're you're trying to bring some mm -hmm. some unity back to the church? Yeah, I think I'm still trying to kind of wrap my mind around the various things that drove this. But I think one of the unhappy consequences of the way that a lot of evangelicals thought about church, really since the late 70s, when you get the seeker-sensitive movement spinning up, is church basically becomes synonymous with content. Um I go to church and I, I consume these songs and this talk and I go home. Um, and so you can even see it reflected, reflected in very kind of hollowed out liturgies. We don't have confession of sin in a lot of churches as part of public worship anymore. We don't have a benediction. 
may or may not have a call to worship, Mm -hmm. all of these things that are traditionally part of Christian worship that presuppose the involvement of everyone in the congregation, um, even if it's just the involvement of like standing and holding out your arms to receive the benediction at the end of the service, a lot of that stuff gets eaten away in evangelical liturgy. And so one of the outcomes of that is I think people learned to think about church life as basically content consumption. Um, And it turns out there's a lot more to discipleship than consuming content. And it turns out that if churches are basically content generators, churches cannot produce content to keep up with cable news or social media. And so you basically end up without hopefully without realizing it, um, outsourcing your discipleship, such as it is, to TikTok or Instagram or cable news or whatever it may be. Because if we're going to just let people be discipled by content, there's a lot of content they're going to consume other than church content. And even I think we saw that during COVID kind of accelerated that because it formalized that church's content thing in a new way by literally putting church on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well said. Yeah. So, yeah, we just ran a piece recently by a friend of mine named Brad East, encouraging churches to switch off the online stream at this point. Um, So I I think part of the problem we're confronting now, and this is part of what I'm trying to do in the book, is present a model of Christian thought and Christian discipleship that is sourced from Scripture and the historic reflections of the church— not just from whatever kind of cultural winds we happen to be getting pushed by in a given moment, which I think is what's inadvertently happened because of the way we've reimagined church life and liturgy in the last 50 years. And you make a lot uh, in your book of a Christian community. And as you say, the community, yes, we gather, uh, there's community there, but then what about throughout the week? And you were making somewhat of a point that there's something to be said about living geographically in close proximity to other believers where possible. Uh, it, it, it facilitates uh, community. Uh, can, can you talk about that, maybe where you see that modeled? Yeah. Um, well, where I see it modeled would be in places like Labrie, which is where I spent two summers as a Christian study center, um, founded by Francis Needis Schaefer, goodness, almost 70 years ago now. Hmm. Uh, God has sustained that ministry for almost 70 years, and they've never fundraised. It's wild. (laughs) (laughs) So Labrie, um, you can find pockets of kind of intentional Christian communities in churches, all over the country where a small group of people all try to move into a similar or like a neighborhood together or move into close proximity with each other. Um, And I think the biggest thing is just that if you aren't intentional about trying to make neighborliness and community part of your life, the natural momentum of our culture is toward busyness, it's toward distraction, it's toward self-expression. And best case scenario, community kind of becomes an item on your checklist that you may or may not have time for. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, it just doesn't even make it to the list. And so if you think that God calls a people, which he does, 
And if you think that we actually need each other to live the Christian life, which we do, um, that's tremendously difficult to do from a position of busyness and distraction and isolation. Um, I just actually, last week, I finished the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And I, I wish I had read it before I wrote my book because there's <laughs> just so much good in that. Um, but Comer even shares a story in there where he says, you know, I try, he's a pastor, he was in full-time pastoral ministry when he wrote it. And he would try to get people to be more serious about spiritual disciplines, daily time in scripture, prayer, fasting, etc. And always, always, always the line was, well, I don't have time. Mm-hmm. And so the initial reply Comer would have is, well, how much time do you have for Netflix? <laughs> and usually at that point, it's like, okay, I actually do have some time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the answer would be, no, I still, I just don't have time. And finally Comer got to a point where he would just tell people, then you don't have a t- you don't have time to be a Christian. And that's a hard word, but he, he made the point. He likened it to, he said, you know, if you had a couple whose marriage was in crisis asking you for advice and they replied to everything you said to do was we don't have time at some point you're going to tell them well i don't think you have time to be married then and so <clears throat> i think that's part of what we're facing right now is that we've gone along with a way of living that makes it very hard to actually love neighbor well <laughs> i'd like to ask you and our time is so limited jake but uh one of these statements that is just filled with uh, all kinds of different ideas but you you write that our vision of the christian life has too often been implicitly conditioned and defined to leave the characteristic idols of the western world untouched unscathed and unchallenged what idols are these that we are leaving untouched, unscathed, and unchallenged? And how have we been conditioned? You say this is a a vision of the Christian life. Yeah, I think the way that ordinary sacrificial love of neighbor, availability to neighbor, presence in the life of your local church, um, to varying degrees, these all kind of get talked about um it's as if the the kind of like middle class bourgeois lifestyle is table stakes and you have to have the table stakes set before you can play the game and once you've got your table stakes now you're ready to do all those things that scripture says you should be doing but until you've established a certain kind of lifestyle your energy your focus is on securing that lifestyle and what that looks like can vary from person to person in terms of like what kind of house or mm-hmm. how much money you have saved up or what kind of car. Um, but I just, I, I know so many stories. I've been in the church my whole life. So I know these stories personally. And I know from talking to friends who are pastors of these folks in their church that like don't have time for being involved in a ministry. They only get to church very occasionally um they're very stingy with their resources and they'll say that they they just don't they're not able to do it and then you actually look and you're like well you actually live in a really nice house and you have a brand new car (laughs) and your kid is in three different activities so what really seems to be going on is there's all of these kind of 
lifestyle markers and lifestyle choices that are seen as just essential to human flourishing in America. And we're pursuing those first. And once all of that is secure, whatever we have left is what we're able to give to the Christian life. So th- those things that you just mentioned where they may be, we, we, we've sort of adopted them maybe unthinkingly as they're part of right. our part of our culture. Right. Well, and I think that goes back to the point about discipleship and spiritual formation is that there's a certain part of me that doesn't really want to be too severe with parishioners that are making these choices because oftentimes I don't think we've taught people anything different. Um, hmm. And so it becomes this kind of question of, well, how, who's really at fault here and how do we make the corrections? Because a lot of times, I mean, I, I spent two years at a private Christian school and there was nothing discernibly Christian about the experience except for the fact that they didn't teach evolution and they had a Bible class. But in terms of uses of money, the treatment of poor people, like all of that stuff was as bad or worse than what I saw in public schools. Um, And so I, I think there's a certain sense in which we've assumed a great many things that are just normal parts of human life. And we've strived to take hold of those things. And it hasn't left a lot of room for how actually demanding and how actually radical a life of Christian discipleship really is. I'd like to ask you in our in our brief time that we have left, you talk about a whole life Christian politics, a certain vision of politics that isn't on the left or on the right, but uh, can, can you talk about what, what you mean by a whole life vision of uh, Christian politics? And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the inspiration for that was a story of a um, Catholic priest I met from South Africa who dedicated almost all of his life to fairly quiet, ordinary parish ministry, um, was actually a missionary in some more rural parts of South Africa in the years after World War II. He taught himself some clicking dialects and even did some Bible translation stuff, I believe, with that. Um and yet he also risked his life to help a journalist who had been put under house arrest because of some of his writing against apartheid. Um, he risked his life to help that journalist escape the country. Um, and so it was a combination of robust parish level involvement in the church with and when the time called for it, and when given the chance, uh, forms of what you would, I think, ordinarily call activism um, in protest of social injustice um, or public injustice, whatever term you want to use. And so what I, w- what I was trying to get at through citing Father Ted is that um, we, as we think about public life, we need to be taking our cues from scripture and the historic reflections of our fathers and mothers in the church, um, rather than, again, from the kind of content mills that we consume from whatever our preferred medium is. Um, and so there's a lot of times where, again, our our idea of Christian politics kind of gets shoehorned into a very kind of 
progressive therapeutic individualist sensibility if you're often if you're younger and if you're on TikTok or it gets shoehorned into more of a, a right-wing sensibility if you're a little bit older and you're getting your media from Fox News. But what I'm concerned about is that when I actually read scripture and when I read church fathers, theologians throughout church history, the vision they have for public life doesn't seem to fit with the default assumptions of either dominant group in America today. And so I want Christians to be people calling for that rather than calling for whichever kind of vision their political block is supposed to like. You would like the priorities to to be able to be anchored in Scripture. Absolutely. I mean, even just think about I've had this argument several times with people about how we think about property. What's implied about property by something like gleaning laws? Like, is Ruth engaged in theft when she goes through the fields in the book of Ruth and takes crops that were on Boaz's land, that Boaz planted, that Boaz's workers helped to grow? Um, if you say that we have some kind of absolute right over our property, I don't see how you avoid that conclusion. And yet in the Old Testament law, God relativizes that right to property by saying whatever your workers drop as they're harvesting is there for the poor. It's not actually yours. It's on your land. You planted it. Your workers harvested it. But once it hits the ground, it belongs to the poor. And so scripture just gives us different ways of thinking about these kind of questions. And I want us to be attending to those ways and not just taking all our cues um, from either dominant political party. Well, my guest today on His People is Jake Meter, and he is editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy and a contributing editor to Plow, and he's written for many other publications. We're talking to him about his book, What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. And Jake, there's so much to ask you about, and there's the, the time is about gone. But I'm wondering, how do these ideas that we've just discussed today and that are in your book influence your own life, the choices that you've made in terms of your discipleship and how you've chosen to live? Well, so one is I'm living in my hometown. Um, I am able to do that because I happen to live in a hometown that has jobs for young folks like me. So I, like other folks in Nebraska might not be able to do that if they're from a small town with an, a farming economy. Mm -hmm. um, but I have been able to, and I've chosen to stay here. Um, being kind of a creative class worker, especially in media, there's lots of ways moving somewhere would make my professional life easier. But we've chosen to try and stay rooted in Southeast Nebraska. And that would be one. We've stayed relatively stable in our church commitments. We've been in the same church since 2016. We've been in the same denomination since 2007. Um, so we have been able to, like I am on friendly terms with all the pastors from our denomination here in town. We know each other. We talk somewhat regularly. Um, these aren't radical things or necessarily mm -hmm. even all that difficult, but they're just choices that you make to try and make stability and rootedness a little bit more easy and plausible. Yeah, I mean, I, I often find myself feeling as if there's all these things I would like to be doing better than I am. <laughs> we, all, we all feel that way, of course. Yeah. Uh, can you leave a word of, of encouragement or of um, hope 
for 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 the for this this very comprehensive uh, message which you're bringing. God promises to be with us as we go out into the world following him and that doesn't mean that what we have to do will be easy i mean i'm reminded of what jesus said to the disciples as he ascended into heaven um he promised to be with them always and then he sent them into the ends of the world and almost all of them were killed so the the call that we're given by christ is not to ease but we are given the promise that he will be with us amidst whatever we're called to um and so no matter what you face when you are with christ you're not facing it alone and you have what you need through him through the gospel a friend of mine said years ago the, the stronger the center is the more daring the outreach can be if you know that you are in christ's hands and nothing can remove you from that um, that frees you to do things that might otherwise seem crazy. But the point is that um, whatever you're called to, God is with you in that. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Jake Meter, editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy and author of What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Phil Dunn on lives he's seen redeemed by God in the criminal justice system. Uh, I did a, did a lot of work in the prison system in California, and I've seen how this is a very ripe harvest and that people's lives can be completely changed. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.